Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. I don't want to move. I'll just sit here in my living room and see what's on the All right. Um, so we were talking last time about coevolution uh, and how a one species perceptual and sensation sort of system can drive another's. And how evolution generally is an arms race. Um, uh, this this sort of speaks, and the biologist is world like this. This sort of speaks to the red queen hypothesis, right? The idea that uh, of of how pathogens evolve, and that causes defenses to evolve, which selects for pathogens one way, and it's that kind of thing. So it's that kind of idea, but it's also like that within predator prey rather than just um, parasites or pathogens and um, hosts. So evolution is basically an arms race. I wanted to, I, it was just only one slide, and it seems kind of strange that I stopped, I could have ran through this, but I want to talk about modularity a bit, because this is an important concept in Evolutionary psychology. So perception, and this is the first time I'm going to bring up big time. I talked about it a bit when I talked about when I introduced some of this stuff. But perception is modular, right? What I mean by that is there are different systems for running, um, let's say, so first, within, well, first generally, there's, um, I don't know, hearing, and vision. They're separate. They're different systems. They're solving different problems. Right? That's what they do. One could make the argument that considering all perceptual systems operate by the same rules, such that we're doing the sort of transducing of energy from something in the physical world to something in the, some, some sort of neural energy, one could then make the argument that they all are actually just called perception. That argument I think we would all laugh at. Because that would be basically saying then that hearing is the same as vision. That touch is the same as uh, smelling. Would anyone here actually accept that argument? Doesn't that just seem bizarre and wrong? Right? It just seems so. We can even get into within vision. And those of you that have taken brain behavior know this, that color, well, let's forget brain behavior for a second. Color and brightness are separate because color is the wavelength of, of light, and brightness is the amount of light that hits the red. And those are going to have to be analyzed separately. And now going to, to the example I was going to use, those of you that have taken brain behavior know that Shape is analyzed separately in the brain than shape in motion. And for those of you that haven't, just take my word for it. You can get a certain lesion in your brain where you can recognize objects unless they start moving, then they disappear. And then when they you look into the motion stops, the object literally reappears in the person's vision. Right? which is apparently exceedingly disconcerting. There's a case like this that we talked about in brain behavior where a woman has a stroke. Uh, I think that's layer V3 of occipital, and she ends up... Um, she said it's horrible because when people... When she's at a, a social event, people just disappear and reappear because they're moving around. 
Think about this, you're crossing the street. If there's no cars, that either means there's no cars, that means there's a whole bunch of moving cars. <laughs> so again, it's pretty bad, right? So it's one of these cases, that's almost, for her, she needs a, a guide dog and a cane because without one, she would, would not. The weird thing, you know what's really neat? Um, moving her head, so the, the objects actually, the, the rental image moves, does not make objects disappear. So there's a feedback mechanism in there. It's very cool. So even within vision, when we get to the, I guess we can call that maybe perception, it doesn't really matter, <coughs> we talk about different subsystems. Solving, for evolution, solving the, the, the problem of what is that and is it moving, those are two separate problems. So you get separate systems evolving. The what is that system doesn't solve the is it moving question or problem. So one of the reasons that Perception is something that evolutionary psychologists like a lot is because it fits a lot with our notion of modularity. So like I said here, movement and shape. And it's movement and shape and shape and motion, which are actually three separate subsystems. When they told you there were five senses when you were a kid, they were lying to you. They were just making the world, well, they weren't probably making the world simple. They probably, most of your high school and, and, and elementary school teachers don't know that there are different subsystems for doing movement and shape and shapes that are moving. The kind of thing that comes up. We can also conceivably say, for let's talk about hearing. Well, there are separate subsystems for detecting where an object is versus how loud it is and what the pitch is. That's three. There's probably something. Oh, well, there probably there is something separate for speech versus everything else. Okay. So speech, when we hear language spoken, we recognize it. I can get you to, you know, think about this. When you're across a room having a conversation with somebody, and you're dividing your attention such that I'm sitting here having a conversation with Lucas, and it's loud. Let's pretend it's before class, and we're just talking about something. And if someone said, uh, way at the back of the room, my name, I'd say, yeah. We, we are constantly scanning for speech. Speech is something separate. And in fact, we have devoted parts of our brain to just do speech, production of and reception of. And that means probably production and reception or something. So the idea that perception is modular is completely self-evident, self right? It just seems to be. Cognition is probably one of the fundamental assumptions, ideas of evolutionary psychology is that cognition is modular, not just perception. Perception and sensation are sort of the basis of all cognition. And so, for example, we have different kinds of memory. Talk more about this when we talk about memory, but we have memory. We have episodic memory, which is memory about things that have happened to us. Right? Autobiographical memory, basically. And then we have semantic memory, memory about facts about the world. Those are two different things. So one of them is knowing what you had for breakfast. A chocolate chip muffin with score, score bits inside it. It was yesterday. Not bad. Could have had seven of them, so that's probably a bad idea. <laughs> one. 
and know what breakfast is. The meal you had at the start of the day. Those are two separate things. And solving the problem of facts about the world is separate from solving the proper problem of what do I, what happened to me. So we think of those as different modules. One of them evolved, I'm sure the episodic one comes after the semantic one in, in evolutionary history, if it makes sense. This makes sense. So there's going to be different selective pressures that are affecting different modules because we think of them almost as cognitive organs is, is a way to think of it. I don't like that explanation, that, that, sorry, not that explanation, but that description very much, but it's the best analogy I can come up with, and I think any, it's not me that came up with it, that anybody can come up with, is that they're, they're cognitive organs, these modules. They may share similar, uh, some of the same systems, some of the same inputs, things like that, but the processing is done separately. And there's tons of evidence that, for example, episodic and semantic memory are processed both neurological evidence and experimental But the nice thing is, the funny thing is, people deny that. You'll have a lot of, and again, the standard social science model says that basically cognition is unitary. There's one or very few mem uh, memory systems, learning systems. Whereas the evolutionary view says, why would there be? It doesn't really follow that that would be the case, that you could have a single system that would solve all cognitive problems. Right? not be surprised to see multiple memory modules or human systems. It shouldn't surprise us. We see it in perception. And people accept that no problem. You say it in memory and there are people that get their backs up for because they're married to this sort of blank slate idea. Questions about that? That's why I wanted to spend a little extra time on the modularity thing because first I've really talked about it in detail. We're good? All right. So where is the next one? It's called consciousness. This is the next one, right? I haven't skipped one. It's consciousness, right? Okay, good. Next time I skip one, tell me, like I did with natural selection, because I mean, it's like I, could, I have all the slides for you know on the computer. I could, okay. Consciousness. I don't like consciousness. I like having it. I'm all for that. I get really... I have a real bias here. I think it's a, a sensible bias. Like, like, like we all think all of our biases are. Um, that I get really uncomfortable with the whole concept of consciousness. As a thing to study. Well, that's a thing to have. I'm, like I said, I, I quite enjoy being conscious. You know, it's good. It's better than unconscious, typically. Typically, had some good dreams in my life. That's it. But, uh, okay. Because my first question to you is, what is consciousness? Yeah, you know, it's funny. In psychology, we operationalize stuff. It's what we do, and it's understandable because we're dealing with really big concepts. So you might say to me, well, Dave, what is love? And I would answer you, I can develop a questionnaire that has reliability and validity and, 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 and it measures love. And I'll say it's your score on this. You may not like that definition. It may not be poetic enough for you. But at least it's something I can make predictions with, I can measure. What's consciousness? We all know what it is, but that's not a very scientific answer. 
Okay, it, it's a, a very unsatisfying answer. It's kind of like when I, in the neuro-pharmacology, when I'm one of the first classes, and I say, what's a drug? And we can't define it because no one, there really isn't a definition of drug. The difference is I'm still a little more confident in my definition of drug than I am in my definition of consciousness. It's a hard thing to define. Any, any thoughts? How would you define consciousness? I realize it's not easy, so don't feel bad if you can't think of something. Because <laughs> I'm not sure I can. Go ahead, Justin. Being able to see something and then picture it in your head and recall details about it? Maybe. Like if I were to look at a lamp and mm -hmm. then go into a different room yes. and know that the lamp was green, the bulb was a halogen bulb, like being able to remember, that's what I assume consciousness. Wouldn't that just be memory? Yeah. I, I can create a pigeon to do that. That's true. Really easily. A pigeon's conscious. Maybe. I, I, they could be. Right? This is the problem. Right? I like your idea of, of having a mental... Representation, but you don't need consciousness to explain representation, right? Because, for example, you can look at oh yeah, okay, the Tunisian desert ant navigates through using a star map, right? And we talked about that old hint. So that navigates with a star map, and. Essentially, doing what humans invented using a sextant and a, a, a really good watch in, in like the 1400s, being able to navigate by the stars and a good, good set of charts. Tunisian ants just do that. And we know they use a star map because you do these time shift experiments where you take them to the lab and you teach them a star pattern and change it and they follow it. They are comparing the representation they have with what they perceive. Is that is a Tunisian desert ant conscious? I think most of us would say no. Right. So you don't need consciousness. Uh, oh, even better, even better. Google is developing driverless cars. I can't wait for that because I can finally drive. Right. Well, I won't be able to drive per se, but I'll have a car that will be mine. I won't have to go. Matty, can you take the liquor store? Um, I don't. I just myself. So, the thing is, that thing is comparing a map to what it's perceiving. It literally are cameras and it perceives where it is. It's a robot. Is it conscious? Is a Google self-driving car conscious? No. You don't need, like, you know how they have the drones, you know, they've got the drones flying over, killing those ISIS guys? Also that, by the way. Anybody opposed to killing ISIS guys? Yeah. Um, even if you are, it's a good example. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Let's not get political. Um, are there, most drones are actually flown by uh, a man or a woman who's using the joystick. It's like the world's greatest video game that you can kill people with it. And there's cameras, and they actually see, then they decide to shoot, right? I mean, that, that's how they work. So in that case, yeah, you've got the Deus Ex Machina, you've got the ghost in the machine, that's the person, the operator. But the Google self-driving car, there aren't going to be thousands of guys at Google headquarters driving your car for you. It's going to do it itself. Right? And it has a representation, Google Maps. Yeah? Yeah. 
Would it be like being aware then, maybe? Yeah. Self-awareness is something that a lot of people talk about as a point of consciousness. How are you going to measure that? Yeah. <laughs> it's, that's, that's the problem. Right? Like I said, I can, we can sit here and talk philosophically about can you, you know, what is love, but I can at least, I can measure it. In fact, there are scales like that. There are, there are perfectly well-developed measuring instruments that are those for consciousness. For all I know, you're all a bunch of really complicated robots. Because my, your thoughts to me are impenetrable. I can't get at your, your internal monologue, things like that. You can't get at mine. Right? The Cylons were created by man. There are many copies. And they have a plan. So the human-looking Cylons, those are conscious, I think. But what about the just the... the the really scary silence. Oh, like they're conscious. I've, again, I've been watching Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I, I've watched it, I've probably watched it through about nine times. I wait for a cool moment. It's like, oh, this is that one, every time I watch it. <laughs> There's not a lot of fun, like funny moments. It's a pretty serious show. Someone once said to me, well, there's no light parts. Yeah, are you looking for light parts of the destruction of humanity? No, there aren't it. Being chased by killer robots, it's not light. It's intense. It's what Star Trek Voyager should have been. Right? A single ship, far away. Shouldn't the ship have broken? Season 7 of Star Trek Voyager. It looks perfect. All their clothes are clean. Everything inside the ship's fine. Captain Janeway is talking like this that you got that. You know, nuts. Anyway, so that'll start to better than Blazer. So, and I thought that was a pretty good Captain Janeway impression. Um, well, we can talk about automatic processing. That's for sure. There are things that we do that are automatic. We don't have to think about, and we just do them. Reading is a nice example for, for almost any adult human, because you just read those words. You didn't have to think about the word automatic it happened automatically. You didn't even have to sound that up. You haven't sounded up words probably since you were pretty little. You might do it if, you, if you're uh, learning a foreign language, sure. But even once you learn the rules of, of, of how letters are pronounced, I can read I can read German. I can't speak German. But I know how to pronounce the letters. Right? Uh, Isabel, my wife, she's, she, 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 can, um, she speaks some Arabic, and she can actually read Arabic writing. And I'll say, well, what's that saying? And she'll tell me, and I'll say, what's it mean? She goes, right? Because she speaks some Arabic, way more than all of us, I assume. But that happens automatically. Or how you ride a bike, it just happens automatically. Usually it's something you learn how to do, and it takes perceptual and cognitive resources, then eventually, or sorry, cognitive resources, then it takes none, it's automatic. We can talk about our sleep cycle. Um, you're awake, then you're asleep. Those are, we would call them perhaps, different states of consciousness. Right? Okay. There's some sleep where you're paralyzed, some where you're paralyzed and dreaming, or some where you're just dreaming. There is non-REM dreaming. It's been discovered the last about 15 years or so. And your idea of, of self-awareness wasn't yours, it's been everybody's for a long time. You brought it up, I'm going to give you complete credit. Yeah, psychologists had you thought. So, this is a hard, we can measure automatic processing. 
right? Because I can see if, if something you're doing is interfered with by doing some other cognitive task. Or are you even, can I ask you how, this is a great question I can ask you about by processing, how do you ride a bicycle? And you can't really explain to me how to ride a bicycle. You just do. Right? My, my, my brother's a, a musician, a very well-known Canadian musician and um, record producer, Juno Award winning. And he can play anything. He can literally play any instrument, even ones he's never played before. I've watched him pick up a flute and just go, oh, this is easy, just play. And I've asked him, how do you do that? And his response to me somewhat sarcastically is, I don't know, how do you not? Because he just can. You know those people, you hate them, right? <laughs> Or people that can draw a perfect version of, a, of some object and you show them like a picture and they just take it with a pencil and it looks perfect. It looks photographic. My sister can do that, so my little brother. I have no art skills at all. I, however, have a PhD in the university, so I think I win. Um, I've asked my sister, how do you draw a picture like that? Because she was advertising her, so that's she says, you look at it, you draw it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too, but when I look, I get, you know, not that. I get something that looks like it was drawn by a child, and perhaps a slow child. <laughs> you know, so, so that we can look at. Sleep cycle, we can look at self-awareness. How do I know you're aware of yourself? You could be like I said, we could all be mindless automatons except for me. I mean, I'm quite sure you're not. But it's really going to be a hard thing for me to measure. You know who you are. I know you do. But I don't know how we're going to measure that. And that actually gets to the crux of what consciousness is. I think. And that's why it's an uncomfortable topic for me because I, 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 I don't know how you measure that. The other thing I can measure is. So, so, you know, some of these things are a little harder to measure than others. These two are actually pretty, this is really easy. I can do that with an app on my phone. I have the sleep cycle app because I sleep poorly to see what affects my sleep. And it actually just, you put it beside you in bed and the accelerometer of the phone detects when you're awake or when you're asleep. It's easy. You know? Yeah, you gotta plug it in. You gotta plug it in or you need battery to die. Yeah. It actually tells you to plug it in. Let's see how did I do this. Trouble falling asleep, fell asleep, woke up. Fell back asleep, woke up. It gives me 64%. I don't know how it's scoring that, but at least it's a number I can look at. <laughs> Science! There's a number. There are charts and graphs. I can deal with charts and graphs. This is, as I said, pretty easy. We can we can try to distract you when you're doing an automatic process. We can't distract you, and we can probably assume that it's more or less automatic, right? But some of these things are going to be a lot harder to measure than other things. So let's start with sleep. Because we can measure sleep. Um, why do we sleep? 
Uh, a lot of regenerative things happen then. Uh, I'm not going to get too much into this, but we repair ourselves. That's a lot of that happens. Kids, when they're growing, <coughs> that's when they grow. It's during sleep, not during wakefulness. It makes some sense that little kids, that kids sleep more than adults do. It's interesting to note that things that have evolved in car- cause the darkness don't sleep. There aren't a whole lot of animals like that, but there are some. Um, and like I said, plus with the planet and the rotating and the sun and what have you. I mean, there are changes during the day and the night. There's light, there's not light. So why not specialize into one part of that so be either diurnal or nocturnal? Functionally, that makes some sense. Uh, better question is, why are we awake? <laughs> a lot of animals hibernate, right? A lot of animals hibernate. So, they're, for a lot of the year, they just aren't even awake. They're just in this, basically, asleep for, say, six months of the year. You don't have to eat, really. You do all your eating before. You don't have to go out anywhere and expose yourself to predators. Bury yourself. You're good. Why don't we do that? Right, you come out to reproduce, load up on food, and go back to sleep. There's got to be some advantage to being awake. Um, this almost certainly depends on, like, you know, so your ecology, predator, predator relationships, etc. Um, it's more of an interesting question, really, to turn it on its head and say, why are, we, why are animals awake at all, except for, for, for eating and, and, and breeding? With us, you know, we've got, and when I say us, I mean primates. There aren't primates that hibernate. There are certain But it's an interesting question in its own right. Anyway, let's move on from that. Most of our behavior is mediated by unconscious cognition. So I don't like the word conscious, but I'll use it anyway. In the unfashion. <laughs> what is what, there's unconscious cognition? Yeah, almost all of your cognition is unconscious. Riding a bike, and this is one of my favorite examples. This is uh, McBurney, one of the authors of the book. Um, how to ride a bike, right? How do you turn right? Or how do you turn left? How do you make a right-hand turn on the bike? Can I talk about this? How do you make a right-hand turn on the bike? And most people answer, you turn the handlebars right. And if you do that, you will fall over. It's one of the reasons that when kids learn to ride a bike, they fall over a lot. They try to turn, and they assume, and it's because mom and dad probably told them, when you want to turn, just turn the handlebars. You fall. What you actually do is you hide the chalk. See, the first thing, the first thing, the person who was in here before had all kinds of chalk loaded up in here, and now there's none. There's literally no chalk here. Wait a second. You hidden chalk? I don't want to have to go downstairs and get chalk. No, I won't. Oh, I know. I'll use my finger to trace in the chalk dust in the clock on the blackboard. You don't just do this. 
It doesn't even leave a mark. I have to lick my finger. That's just weird. Chalk in your home? That could be no. That could be chocolate. No, I don't get chalk. I'll be right back. I'm just pissing me off. I'll be right back. Chalk. <laughs> just don't, don't, don't leave it right there with my computer. But anyway, we all think we do this. What we actually do is when you're going to turn right, you turn the wheel to the left a little bit and then to the right. And this is true of anybody on bicycle. You can't just turn your. You literally will fall over. literally fall over if you do that. And you can ask anybody who's learned to ride a bike. So as long as you know how to ride a bike, you can ask expert cyclists, and you can ask any of us, I don't know if anybody here in the Olympics. <laughs> no matter who you are, you think you turn like this, and you actually turn like that. A little bit to the other direction first. Next time you ride a bike, you'll notice that you do that, actually, now that I've mentioned it. So that's impenetrable to consciousness. You don't know it, no matter what your experience is riding a bicycle. So it's unconscious cognition. Playing video games is another great example. You ever had someone go over to your house and you're playing a game, and they've never played this game before, and you give them the controller, and they say, how do you shoot? And you have to actually look while you shoot and see what you do. <laughs> right? You just do. I don't know. And they have to stop and carefully look, or you throw the manual at them. <laughs> right, but not, no, no games come with manuals anymore. It's all downloadable now. <coughs> but it's really difficult, in fact, to explain to somebody what controls do what. The nice thing is now, you know, most shooters use the same kind of system. There's this one James Bond game called uh, yeah, it's opposite, and it drives it just drives me nuts. I have for the original Xbox, it's funny, just exactly the game I was talking about because instead of moving around. No, I can't even think how to do it. Uh, looking around with the right stick and moving with the left stick, it's exactly the opposite. And if you've been playing any shooters all your life, you're walking around this game just like this. You have no idea what to do. Right? It's horrible. Or it's like in Halo when you learn to fly, when you, when you fly the first time in the Banshee. And it, the controls are opposite what they should be in a flying game. And if you play a flying game, you start to... It's a good movie. You've seen that? The flying game? At the end, the guy's the woman's guy. That was a crying game. Um, spoiler alert. Um, so, like, I remember the first time I was doing that. And it was pulling up to go up and going down. It's broken. Right? So, that's another one. 
So they're cognitively impenetrable. This isn't cognitively impenetrable. You can actually sit down and think about it and you do it, and you can explain it. You can't explain this without actually seeing the video of it, because most people didn't believe it. With the bicycle situation. I just spent all that time to get chalk to draw that on the board. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Hopefully there'll be other uses later. But if I asked you how you read, you can't explain it to me. You can explain how you learned to read. Yeah, sure, of course you can. You learned how to sound out, you learned phonics and all that stuff. Or, or were, you guys, were you guys the generation that didn't teach any phonics? Because they're doing that head. They taught you phonics. It's sound length. Letters, close to this stuff. Because there's other stuff they didn't teach. Was it, I think it was just before you guys, they didn't teach them any phonics. I don't think I got taught geography very well. You didn't actually get taught geography. No, I got maybe just continents. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, what else? Yeah. What else is it? Yeah. Sure. So, as I always tell William Osai, it's mostly just coloring. Just coloring maps. That's pretty much all this. And he always takes it seriously when I say that. He goes, no, no, no. I've known you for 15 years. I'm kidding. Yes, of course. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how I read. I just read. I can't explain how it works. In fact, psychologists have to do really complicated experiments. There are people that devote their careers doing nothing but work on reading. They have to figure out how people read because you can't even guess. So, a lot of the learning we do takes place without awareness. God, I don't like that word either because I don't think I can, I'm not sure I can measure that either. So classical conditioning, when classical conditioning is, you know you've got, let's see, let's the chalk. We've got a conditioned stimulus, and an unconditioned stimulus, so we've got a buzzer, and we got food. It's Pavlov's dog, right here. It's not a bell, it's a buzzer. Um, and eventually Pavlov, Pavlov's dogs learned that the buzzer breaks food and they start salivating the buzzer comes on. Um, this also shows up in this shows up in every species that's ever been tested. And this goes all the way to nematodes that are in two neurons. Everything shows classical condition. Now the neat thing about this is that it also works in us. And you'd think, yeah, but we can figure it out. You know, and it, it's interesting because when you give people classical conditioning trials, with humans you might use something like an air puff to the eye, which is preceded by a, a light, and very quickly you'll learn to blink your eye but just as the air, the light comes on. But you ask people, as the experiment goes on, what's going on in this experiment? And they don't report, oh, the light, the light predicts the air puff. They, they report that after they've actually started responding that the light predicts the air puff. In other words, Knowing about it, being able to say what's happening, not knowing about it, being able to, to say what's happening actually comes after the learning. Right? A lot of data on that. There's priming and other implicit memory type tasks. Priming is a take the memory class with me next term, or uh, some of you have, I think. I know you took memory with me, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, a couple other you guys did. Priming is a pretty simple procedure where I give you. A list of words, and on that list is the word chickadee. Okay? 
So I, that's one of the words in the list. I have a labor retention interval where I try to distract you, and so you aren't just repeating the words in your head. Uh, in fact, speaking of geography, very often we use, uh, here's a map, label it, because people take that very seriously when we tell them that it's correlated to intelligence. Um, or we don't typically, that's supposed to be like, that's, that's unethical. But we might say something like, we're also interested in your geographical knowledge. Anything you use the word knowledge, people take seriously. So they get really serious, and then they're horrible at it, and you get to laugh at their responses, which you should be doing, which is unethical, but it's funny you do it anyway. Um, then you give people a word fragment. Okay, you give them that. And you say, and a bunch of others, you give them one every say five seconds, fill them in. Fill them in. Now, you are more likely to fill in ones you've seen just previously than ones you haven't seen previously. Did you get a different solution for that one? Yeah? Um, it's called implicit memory. Uh, it's memory that you don't know you have. Because in fact, if you present these fast enough, people better five seconds, and afterwards you ask them about the, the past, most people don't even notice. You say, Did you notice anything about those word fragments? They go, it's hard. And there's a small percentage of people that say, I think some of those were on the list I just studied, right? You go, yep, some of them were. You could usually have them. And it's also neat that when you ask people, that's the implicit memory, explicit memory is when you ask people to remember the words. And they'll do that, that's not a problem. The interesting thing here is the likelihood, the probability of remembering, of completing this correctly is the same if you remembered the word chickadee and if you didn't remember the word chickadee. They're independent systems. And they're served by different brain regions. If you get damage to your hippocampus, for example, you won't be able to remember even after five minutes. The word chickadee was presented, but you'll still do better on the fragment chickadee than you'll do on the fragment for uh, assassin, which I didn't present to you. So that's learning without awareness. You don't even know that it's happened. Hell, this was only discovered, really. The whole idea of priming only really goes, starts, people start studying it heavily in the 80s. A language learning for the first language is completely implicit. I shouldn't say complete. A lot of it's implicit. You don't have to teach, sit your kid down and teach him words. We all do that. Right? This is a cocktail shaker. This is gin. This is vermouth. Go make daddy a martini. Um, but, well, that's not dry enough. Start again. But, oh no, I'll drink it. Now, <laughs> That's why you have kids, it's so they can make you drinks, mow the lawn, shovel, probably. But for the most part, we don't have to. We don't have to teach them grammar, do we? Teach grammar. You do, but it's interesting that the grammar you end up teaching is when they make generalization errors, isn't it? Because you can teach kids just learn to say, I went, instead of I, I go. Except when they hit about two and a half and they've internalized English grammar, then they say, I go, because they know that you add ed to a verb and it makes it past tense. 
You gotta go, no, it doesn't work like that with go. It's wind. I don't know why. Stop asking why. I know you're two, and all you do is say why. <laughs> the man once asked me, why? Well, I would drop my keys. She said, why did that happen? I said, well, just let go. She said, no, why did they fall to the ground? <laughs> I'm going to explain gravity to her. So I tried the whole Einsteinian idea. Space time. Yeah, I said, imagine if the, the earth was like a big ball on a blanket and things, where would they go if they was on a blanket? And I think she goes, it's like a magnet. I said, close enough. <laughs> okay, she can't do Einstein. So it's interesting that learning grammar, basic, internalizing the basic grammar of a language is something that just happens. Now, for your second language, that's different. If you learn it after about four or five, it's hard, right? I've been speaking French reasonably well since I was about 23 when I met my wife. And I still, my grammar is horrible. My vocabulary is really big. My pronunciation is quite good. But everything takes place in the present tense. <laughs> because it's only convenient. You know, people say, I can do the past, the future, okay. I can understand it when people say it. Conditional is ridiculous. And then I can't do that hard. There's that past tense they only use when, when it's written down, not when you're talking. There's the tense that's only doing on Thursdays. So I don't know if you know what that is. It's things like that, right? It's like I was learning Latin um, in, in high school. It's like 10 or 12 verb tenses. It's hard. It's hard. But as a kid, so I remember sitting around with my friend, uh, Donnie, and, and, and I guess we were in undergrads, and uh, we were visiting our friend Ian in at university, and he was, at, he was at McGill, and we were in Montreal, and you ever been to Schwartz's Deli, which is a great classic place to get smoked meat, and you sit down at communal tables. Like, if there's two there's tables about this size, six people, and if it's the two of you, and there's four people sitting there, you're told you sit there. So we sit. So we're sitting beside, we're sitting down, and the family comes in beside us, and the kid who's about four looks over at Donnie and asks in French, can I have the mustard, please? And the kid, no, my friend Donnie says, well, I can swear you're going to speak French. I said, no, he's probably a French kid. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, your parents were really smart because they, they knew yeah, Italian, right? He said, well, they come from Italy. I said, see? <laughs> right? So it's that kind of thing. As a little kid, you can learn that stuff as an, as an adult. It's hard. Now, now we're going to get into awareness. This is, gets harder and a little ethereal, actually. And I don't mean raising awareness, which I don't know what that means, by the way. But we're raising awareness. Of what? I didn't know there was breast cancer. I was quite aware of it. Anyway. Oh, dude. <laughs> Mind is modular. Separate systems for perception, doing different perceptual tasks, doing different cognitive tasks. However, does it feel like that? No. Consciousness is unitary, isn't it? Our experience of daily life is a unitary thing, is it not? Yeah, it's weird it's not. Like, I, there's nobody in here that like says, well, I, first I recognize things, then I know I'm layering the sound on top. Nobody's thinking like that, right? Even though you know if you take a brain behavior that there's five different things that are happening for vision in the occipital lobe, you don't recognize that. So that's called the binding problem. Uh, it's how we bind everything together, our past experiences, our learning, and everything else together. Okay? Aristotle called this the common sense. That's where the term common sense comes from. It doesn't mean doing things sensibly. It actually means the sense that binds all the senses. It's these, it actually is the sixth sense. 
I see dead people. Spoiler alert. I've wrecked two movies for you. <laughs> that have like classic endings. And if you couldn't figure those out when you're watching those movies, you weren't watching the movies. We're not paying attention properly. Well, I saw that's got a lot of stuff wrong. Um, the key thing with humans is visual dominance. Now, this makes a lot of evolutionary sense because we have, well, first of all, we're very visual animals. More visual probably than almost, certainly than any other kind. There's no argument there. That's the first thing. But secondly, um, we will take visual information and... Well, why would this be? Well, frankly, I was talking the other day about ripe, ripe, ripe fruit, things like that, and, and we evolved from animals that were in trees. So it makes a lot of sense. Without visual dominance, I can give you in the dark food that you wouldn't eat in the light, and you think it tastes fun. The example that's often used is mashed potatoes, which are a sort of comfort food for most people. Most people like it. And then you give them mashed potatoes that are dyed, I don't know, purple. It's food coloring, it's flavorless. People eat it and die, I didn't like that that much. Or like neon orange. Right? They'll taste something else that isn't there. So vision dominates with humans. And you can notice this, frankly, when you, and it's very interesting, when, when, if you ever watch uh, uh, these cooking uh, competition shows, right? If you watch the, uh, the Hell's Kitchen, which isn't really a cooking competition, it's more just a guy yelling at idiots, which I still watch, which is sad. <laughs> but one of my favorite things they have is when they're blindfolded and they don't have um, hearing, and they taste things and they try to guess what they are and how amazingly wrong they can be. Right? They'll eat a piece of pork and they'll go, carrot? <laughs> And we all laugh. And Gordon Ramsay calls the open with their, their little uh, headphone and goes, You donkey, right? <laughs> wow, yeah? Wow. He does that one, eh? Pops up and down. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, wow. Fresh, local, interesting, busted, yeah. Stamets! Don't tell me he's acting most of the time in Hell's Kitchen. Then there's the times he just does this. <laughs> and so once a season they show that, and I think that's me going, is this worth it? I've made a great deal of money, but I'm got me showing stars in the show. I love those moments because it's a little bit of reality in a reality TV show. But that's neat to watch because you actually see the visual dominance thing. There's all these data on, like I said, mashed potatoes making them neon green. People go, ah, I don't like these anymore. So where did all this come from? Where did self-awareness come from? So Danny Pavanelli um, is a pretty smart guy. And one of the things that he's talked about, that Pavanelli and Kent have talked about, is the mirror test. Now, the mirror test was developed by Gordon Gallup. The mirror test works like this. You take an animal, and you anesthetize them and you paint a dot on their forehead. Okay. Paint a dot. Using paint that obviously is non-toxic. It would be mean to use toxic paint. And then they wake up and you show them themselves in a mirror. <coughs> you did this with a human. I showed you a picture. You did a, the first thing you do is this. 
right? Because you'd see that, that's, why is there a dog in my head? You show that to a chip, they go, this? You show that to a baby past the age of two, I think it is. Yeah, maybe three. Yeah, two. Two and a half that age, you know? They do the same thing. What's going on? Before that, babies look behind the mirror to see what the other baby is, you know? <laughs> right? You do that to a gorilla, it just gets mad at the other gorilla. Gorillas can never learn the mirrors are them. It'll find the mirror, he's gone. Oh, he's back, you know? He's very thin. Two-dimensional gorilla. Yes, because gorillas know a great deal about Euclidean geometry. Um, what else? Dolphins pass the dot test? Elephants, I believe, pass the dot test. Yeah. Now, is this a self-awareness measure? I don't know. But I can't think of one that's better. And I must say, I have a bias against Gordon Gallup because he once rejected a paper of mine when he was the editor of a journal. So, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, I know, I know that about myself. I, you know, uh, I remember the paper was rejected, and I remember sending an email to one of my colleagues who was a co-author of the paper, and said, oh, not good enough for Mr. Dot on the forehead. Uh, <laughs> got published in another journal. No problem. It's actually a clever technique. I just, it's the best way I can think of so far that we've come up with to look at self-awareness in an animal. But is it something that, but is it actually doing that? I, I honestly don't know, but this is what you always deal with with these consciousness and self-awareness measures. Ultimately, you're not inside the animal's head. So you can't know. But I, I honestly can't know that you're conscious, as I've said a few times. So we would all accept that we are, so why not accept that these animals actually can see that that's them, that they are aware that they are a separate thing from the rest of the universe. It's okay. Okay, so Danny Pavanelli, and, and, and I don't, never, I don't can't see the graduate student, I think, so. Um, where was Danny the graduate student? Anyway, um, okay. With the mirror test, apes that have swung through trees pass it. Apes that right now swing in trees. Apes that live on the ground don't pass it. They just attack. So gorillas fail the test because gorillas don't live, you know, you couldn't swing them if you weighed 400, 800 pounds. You don't swing through a lot of trees. You maybe wouldn't be passing your genes on much. Now, gorillas don't swing through trees, but neither other apes do. But, wait a sec. Did we evolve in the trees? Well, no. In fact, walking with cavemen, everything we know, uh, we look back to Australopithecus, we're pretty sure that Australopithecus may have climbed the odd tree, right? But lived on the savannah. Standing upright, why don't you say, you know, a, there you go. Living on the savannah is probably what caused uh, evolutionarily us to stand upright. Well, Australopithecus is visually leading us. But our ancestors did. 
Oops, go back. Our ancestors did. When the chimps and the line that leads to humans split off five million years ago, they split from something that lived in trees. We haven't found that thing yet. But that's where the chimps still live. The first primate to live on the ground is Australopithecus, so we're pretty sure this thing lived in the trees, this proto-chimp, proto-Australopithecus. You have to have a pretty good sense of where you are in three-dimensional space if you're a tree swinger. Because if you don't, you die. If you're swinging and then you get like, uh-oh, I think I miscalculated. <laughs> you know, you're dead. You're dead. Uh, I thought I could make that jump. Now I can't make it and I die. So what likely happened was we had all this, this is a guess, we, the humans, had all of this extra processing power to deal with knowing where you are at six degrees of freedom in, in, in space, right? Back, forth, left, right, up, down. Now we don't need that. It's gone. We don't, well, we don't need it. But it, the, the capacity is still there. So what happens is, now we're on the ground, and there's something, instead of adaptation, it's the idea of exaptation. There's something that's already there, and it gets co-opted by evolution. This was a term that Stephen Jay Gould came up with, exaptation. So this is the notion then, it's the same thing with uh, feathers are an exaptation. Feathers actually are great for flying. That's why if you've ever seen birds, they have feathers. <laughs> But originally, feathers evolved in other dinosaurs, because birds are dinosaurs, which is cool, um, as a way to keep the young warm. Seems pretty clear now. Right? Also, T Rex had feathers, which is even scarier somehow. Keep that in mind. 11 foot tall dinosaur with a giant, with little tiny hands, right? which were used only for holding on to the female during mating. Did you know that? That's probably what those hands were for. Because they couldn't do anything else when they can. They were tiny things. They were for holding on. Oh, that's, that's, that's the theory. Now they've got feathers. Now, a beautiful plumage on the giant T-Rex. But then what happens is Archaeopteryx evolves. And at the same time, with the wing sort of action, feathers change just a little tiny bit to become flight feathers. So... Evolution takes something that's already there and uses it for a different purpose. So this is the same thing. Probably, well, this is a good guess where, where self-awareness comes from, is we have this idea of knowing where you are separate from the environment, and now we don't need that anymore. Now we have all this extra cognitive power. Let's use it for something else. And we develop into us, eventually. So this leads to the, the idea of the unity of the self, the idea that, again, the binding problem, the idea that we're, we are a person separate from the world. We are a, a, um, an entity separate from the rest of the universe. And that I am me, and you are not me, but you're like me. Okay? One of the things this leads to, if you have a concept of self, because it allows you to lie to yourself. Right? Self-deception. 
Now, we know there's self-deception in humans. There's a self-serving bias. Right? There's all these biases in social psychology where we take credit for good stuff and blame the environment for bad stuff or the people around us. Right? It's interesting, in fact, that the self-serving bias, again, this is this idea that anything that I've done that is positive, I will take credit for. It's interesting, depressed people don't have that. Depressed people are actually typically a lot more realistic in that respect. That they say that, you know, well, it's probably more just the way, you know, um, I did, it's good stuff. I didn't do it. I'm just lucky. The problem is they just flip it around and say everything bad is their fault. You know, so that's not good. But it's probably pretty sensible to deceive yourself, Kelvin. Because remember, evolution doesn't care what happens in 20 years. It's going to select for what's going to happen now. Is it going to lead to a mating opportunity? Is it going to increase my fitness? Not, am I lying to myself and being immoral? People say this. We have, and this is the cross-cultural thing. It's, it's not like it's only in our Western uh, culture where people say, when they get married, but they, they vow saying that you will be with the person forever. And the idea is, I will love you forever. It's not like... This is an arrangement that will probably work out okay. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are going to have the same level of commitment and feelings for somebody forever. And those feelings change. They change such that I love my wife more now than I did before. Did you hear that? Probably don't. (laughs) <laughs> it's too bad because you know just score some points um, but yeah I mean we, we, we tell ourselves those things that's a good way to keep a couple together to allow more children to be produced so you can pass more of your genes on you are convincing yourself that throwing everything into this whole deal and you know getting joint bank accounts is a good idea and always will be. And half of marriages, roughly, less than Canada, half marriages in the States, but four, it's 49% in Canada, and in divorce. Chances are, like if you're at a, at a if you're, you can sit there and go, there's a four in ten chance this just isn't going to work. But you never say that. There are people that say those things. Those people are called jerks. <laughs> uh, but you don't say that. Nobody says that to themselves when they're up there exchanging their rings. They don't go, I hope this works out. Don't whisper that to your, your person you're about to marry. <laughs> we should probably flip a coin. <laughs> you know, you don't do that. That does kill the wedding night and day and the rest of your life. Um, so we're actually, in this case, we're lying to ourselves. And I know you're all saying, I love my girlfriend. I love my boyfriend. Yeah, you have treated I feel bad about that forever. I'm sure you think that. This is one, this is interesting. Well, it is true, uh, there's you know, some Canadian data, that 93% of Canadians in a, in a committed relationship, either a long-term uh, couple or, or, or actually married, have been faithful to each other in the last year, which is great. It's nice to hear. 
Yeah, it's nice to hear. In the last year. Yeah, it's just for a year. I gotta know forever. But we also do know that people cheat on people. And most now, you know, I'm sure there are people when they get married who think, oh yeah, now I got her at home. And I can go out later. Yeah, there are people like that. Again, those are people called dicks. But for the most part, people don't plan when they're getting married or, or committing to a long-term relationship that I'll also cheat on somebody. This will be great. Again, I'm sure there are people who think that. I, I'm certain there are people who think that. But I think, you know, even on Mad Men, I'm pretty sure Don Draper was pretty sure that he was going to be with Megan forever after he left the other woman. She left him like it's really, and justifiably so. Love that show. What are they doing Mad Men's work? They're watching that True Detective together. Oh, man. Gosh, that's a show. Got an episode and a half left. That's it. Here's another one. I'll pay you back that 10 bucks out of it. Right? So, and that isn't just my money. I'm talking about reciprocal altruism. The idea that I will not cheat you out of anything. Reciprocal altruism, I mean, I think I mentioned this, there's probably really no altruism. Altruism makes very little sense, right? Because if I'm going to, something's going to cost me and benefit you, it doesn't make any evolutionary sense. However, if something costs me now, and then later I can get something out of you, that's good. Right? So it ends up in a wash, but right now you help me, later I help you. That's perfect. That, that's, and that's how human sort of society like we evolve. That's, that's fine. The interesting thing here is, not everybody pays back, pays off their debts. Right? Now, we catch people right away, and usually we don't lend them 10 bucks anymore because we lend them 10 bucks once and we never get it back. Right? Or as I said, I think earlier on the course, you, somebody borrows your notes and they never take them back, you just never ever lend your notes to that person again. Right? Fair enough. But the first time, they had to convince you, they had to lie probably to themselves to convince them, to make themselves look sensible, look, 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 look like they're telling the truth, so you don't detect that they're lying. So these things are all very convinced, much more convincing when you believe them yourself when you say them. So I'm not talking about a psychopath here. Right? I'm not talking about somebody who's just doing this for their own personal gain and uses people as their own personal playthings. I'm talking about real, genuine, uh, normal people who are doing this and saying these kinds of things, even though they may be good, they're going to cheat on these various things. Now, is there reciprocal altruism in other species? Sure, it does happen. Uh, there's a great example that it happens in vampire bats. Um, vampire bats, of course, eat blood. It's the name. Um, they also turn into vampires. <laughs> that part's not true. Um, so they roost together communally, right? And 
if you don't get a blood meal, again, vampire bats are pretty small. Let me, the size of like little mice, eh? But they got the big teeth and the bite in the neck. And they all talk like this. They talk like these fucking little kids. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know to bite you in that. So, it's the clue. It's the way for me and you. If he does that again in my presence, 10 years he's been doing that. It drives me nuts. <laughs> Anyway, um, one bites one's neck. Not everybody gets a, gets a feed every night. Not everybody gets a meal. So what happens is one will go up to another one, and one of them, the who's, who's clearly got a bit of an engorged belly, and uh, he'll sort of be begging behavior, and the other one will, will actually regurgitate some blood. So he'll vomit up some blood. Delicious. Um, and that feeds the other guy a little bit. Gets it through the night. Now that sounds like altruism, except that the next time that that other guy doesn't need, doesn't eat, he goes and asks from that other guy. So in the race of altruism, we know one thing about that. It's pretty cool. Uh, it does seem to happen in chimps. I talked about the mating opportunity thing a few, maybe a week or two ago. So it does happen in chimps as well. We know it happens in other species, but it doesn't happen in any species as much as it happens in us. And for it to happen as much as it does in us, we have to be able to understand who we are about ourselves so we can deceive ourselves, basically. We have to be sending signals that seem honest. You would never borrow 10 bucks from somebody who said, can I have 10 bucks? And sort of giggled weirdly at you. Or if somebody was honest with you and said, can I put, can borrow 10 bucks? And you'd say, you're gonna, when are you going to pay me back? Oh, I'm not entirely sure I'm going to pay you back. I think some of us would go, you know what? That is so refreshingly honest. Here's 20. Um, it would be nice. So it's one of these things where our consciousness has allowed us to become who we are. How did the consciousness evolve? Probably something to do with this excess cognitive capacity that we have because we don't live in the trees anymore, but our ancestors did. Right. Any questions on that stuff?
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's pod safe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.